Welcome to Media Tribe. I'm Shauna Kinnear, and this is the podcast that tells the story behind the story. It's an opportunity for you and I to step into the shoes of the most extraordinary media folk who cover the issues that matter most. Basically, most news really is about distinguishing signal, real things that are signalling stuff that's happening, from noise, opinion poll data. It bounces up and down, and you've got, you've got to pick the signal out of the noise. This week, I'm chatting to one of the UK's favourite journalists, Evan Davis. Evan has been the voice of reason on BBC Radio 4 for years now, both in his Today and PM shows, and previously the voice and face of Newsnight, the BBC's flagship current affairs programme. But for those of you not so familiar with Evan, let me tell you now, he's kind of a big deal in the world of journalism. So Evan, how did you get into journalism? My journey, as in many of the answers I'll be giving to lots of questions, is rather pedestrian and boring, but it is it does have a very important lesson in it, so it is definitely worth listening to. I went into journalism via economics, so I never really did any of the craft journalistic skill training that most good journalists have. And it means even today I have huge great lapses in sort of knowledge of what you're meant to do as a journalist on certain occasions. I was a professional economist at the Institute for Fiscal Studies. I'd worked at the London Business School and I'd done, a, you know, a master's level training in, uh, in economics. So that was my background. And I went into the BBC because they had an economics editor, a really fine man, Peter Jay, one-time ambassador to the US, British ambassador to the US, um, from a noble family, son of a former cabinet minister, and um, a, a, a great guy um, with a long history of thinking about journalism and broadcasting and worked with John Burt, former director general of the BBC. So Peter Jay was a big figure and was the economics editor of the BBC who pronounced on the nightly news what the take on the economy was, the economic situation. But Peter was quite old school in one one important regard. He really thought that no one should be working in this who didn't have some sort of good economics background and preferably a first-class degree from an old old university. And so the BBC was struggling, really, to recruit people who met Peter Jay's very high sort of requirements for what the job entailed. And I actually had been asked to... Um, I'd been asked to do a sort of mock interview with somebody as an economist to be an interviewee because the BBC were testing this person out as a oh, right. as an economics broadcaster. So they just wanted to film film her interviewing me for audition purposes. And I said, I think I I would be at least as good as that, if not better, rather immodestly. Um, and the guy said, you should you should write, you know, to Peter or you should write to um, the BBC because I know they're always on the lookout for people who actually have a professional economics background. So I actually did, and they did want somebody, and so they interviewed me, and they just took me. And I, and I never went through proper journalistic training, uh, and I was an economics correspondent. And that specialty, and I, I, this is my line to every young aspiring journalist, the fact that I had a specialism really, really helped, because it just gave me a little solid rock on which I could stand, and which I knew more than most not not all, but, but but many of the people I was working with. Um, 
and you know news editors had a kind of respect because <laughs> here was someone who had worked in economics and who obviously kind of knew his way around it and and i i think that i think that was fantastically useful so i do always say to people your route into journalism should be to have something you're interested in other than journalism and that's great for two reasons firstly it'll give you something as a journalist to talk about that you that you know about and you're good at whether it's yeah. sport or environment or religious affairs or american politics or west european politics or you know, mental health, there are a million topics. But the second reason to have this hinterland of something that is your specialty is that when your journalistic career flops or your when journalism is no longer a credible career path because no one can make money in it or whatever, you've got a plan B, you've got something else that you know about. So um, so I, I, I do think specialism is good. And that was my route into the BBC. And I've been there for, you know, two and a half decades since. Was journalism your your first choice? Well, it's funny, you know, Shona, when I was at school, I was always interested in the news and interested in current affairs and in economics and politics. So there was a kind of gang of us who used to get the train to school each day between Ashstead, Leatherhead and Dorking. And we would argue and argue about politics. And I mean, we really... quite precocious sort of know-it-all young teenagers. Sure. None of us none of us very good at football or sport. <laughs> you know the kind of kind of people we are. We're sort of, you know, we we would rather argue about politics. And this was at a time actually when 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 Thatcher was coming to power and it was it was kind of quite interesting time really for for the economy and changing thinking about uh, about all of that. So, um, so no, that was that was where I started, and I think I did always want to go into that. And I knew I was never going to be an academic, even though I was operating in a sort of low-grade academic sphere. Right. I knew I was never going to be a very good academic. That surprises me, honestly, because I kind of look at you and I think he's really, really intelligent. <laughs> no, no, no. Right. So to be a, a, if you want to be a, 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 a competent academic, you have to be quite a detailed person. If you want to be a journalist, it's better to be a big picture person, I think. And I was much more big picture, you know. I mean, I could spend a day or two researching something. The idea of spending three years researching something really, obviously, never, never felt, um, never felt very attractive. So no, I, um, I was never going to be a great academic. The best academics, by the way, are the ones who are really good at the detail and really good at the big picture. Yeah, well, that actually leads me to one. I remember you telling me probably one of the first times we ever met, Evan, which I think uh, was back in 2012, I believe. I remember our our first coffee at the BBC. I was probably terrified meeting you and then I realised you're actually pretty lovely and sound. Um, But I remember you saying there was there's two kinds of journalists and one was um, one who was very into the detail and kind of chasing the story and, and chasing the scoop. And then there was another type of journalist, somebody who kind of had the information there already and w- was a person who was able to disseminate that information. And you told me that you kind of fall into the latter. Yeah, so let me explain the difference. And it, it, this actually comes from Peter Jay, my great men- mentor at the BBC, used to say, you know the phrase, comment is free and facts are sacred. He said it's completely the opposite way around. That, you know, basically the facts are just lying all over the place, like on landfill. There are just so many facts. And they're just not interesting. The only interesting thing 
is how you piece the facts together, the shape you put on them, and the which facts you pick, and what patterns you draw between them. And it's like sort of join the dots, you know, those join the dot puzzles, where you you out of what looks like sort of random bits of stuff scattered on a page, you're trying to find a shape. And so he said it's all about finding the shape, it's not about the facts. Um, now, obviously, it's about both. You can't have one without the other. But no, I definitely know that I'm I'm a kind of explainer and a kind of retailer. And if you said to me, hey, look, I've got this scoop. These figures are going to be released tomorrow. I've got them tonight. And do you want to report them? My kind of instinct is, well, no, they're going to be released tomorrow. Let's wait. And, you know, you can publish them tomorrow. I don't need them. Oh, in really? I don't need them in advance. Which is, how, do, how do your bosses take that? <laughs> yeah, no, no, I'm just such a such a sort of bad journalist. But I do think I am. I do think. I mean, I do think I am quite good at explaining and and and, and piecing them together sometimes. And I, um, and what that means often as a journalist is throwing the facts away because often there are distracting facts that are actually just clogging up your understanding. <laughs> and so it's about knowing which facts you can dispense with. And this is this is more an economic thing than in every other area. But in economics, um, there are probably if you're taking the latest GDP figures, there are going to be about four or five different ways you can present them. The quarter on quarter, the this quarter on the year before, the last year on the year before that, or the calendar, the annualized quarter on quarter. There are loads of ways you can do it. Um, and where you dispense all the noise. Basically, most news really is about distinguishing signal, real things that are signaling stuff that's happening from noise. Opinion poll data, it bounces up and down. And you've got you've got to pick the signal out of the noise. Yeah, well, I, that also brings me on to something else that I feel like you were probably ahead of the curve and kind of calling out the bullshit pre-2016, uh, you know, in, <laughs> in our inverted commas post-truth world. Um, like, is, is that kind of what you mean as well? Uh, yeah, yeah. And I, I, I like to think that I'm that going with that. And this is important going with that is a certain open mindedness. So this is another thing about two different types of journalists. There are journalists who are not open-minded um, and who basically come with a view. And their journalism is about, if you like, promoting their values or their view or showing uh, that they're right about the world. Um, I like those journalists. We need those journalists. Many of them are columnists because that's you know what columnists have to do, is have a view. There's no point in being boring as a columnist. I like to think of myself as on the opposite side of that, which is a more sort of open-minded, genuinely trying to be fair to both sides of an argument. I'm not ever trying to persuade you of one side of the argument unless, you know, I'm, I'm absolutely convinced that there's something fishy going on the other side. Um, so a kind of open-mindedness with a degree of, 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 you know, trying to call out the distracting, rubbishy facts that are not really helping you from the other ones, I think I think that that is what I like to think is what I bring to journalism. Obviously, you know, you're, you're you've had an amazing career, and I think I first came to know you when you're at today on the radio, mm -hmm. and then you obviously went to Newsnight television for you know any non-British listening to this and then you went back to radio so at your when you were at Newsnight um your style obviously 
is it was very different to Jeremy Paxman's, I guess, a more thoughtful discourse. You're you're inclined to um, be a lot more yeah. thoughtful, as you said, and listen to both sides. Is, is is that style? Do you feel like that? You know, that works in in today's kind of quite divided world. Well, okay, so this is this gets at the heart of you know some really interesting features of my career and my journalism and and, and lack of journalistic skill. So Newsnight, for those who don't know it. Is a program that has been quite famous for its adversarial approach to interviews and to coverage of the news. So it's 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 a lot of it has been around the program having some attitude and t- making an argument, and in a sense picking a fight with people it it, it does interviews with. Um, and Jeremy Paxman, the, the the most famous presenter of Newsnight, um, I mean he was. Funny, actually, he was a funny guy as a presenter because he um, he was so withering in his his uh, encounters with politicians. And there are some famous cases which you can see on YouTube. And when they had to replace Jeremy Paxman, they realised that rather than just having a not very good Jeremy Paxman, it was perhaps better to try and get someone who was the opposite of Jeremy Paxman, <laughs> who wasn't going to try and be Jeremy Paxman. Now, it's actually quite an interesting, it was quite an instructive experience because that was definitely the reason they got me was don't be Jeremy Paxman. Jeremy Paxman was too good to to kind of imitate. Yeah. And so we think was the source of argument I was hearing that more warmth and more curiosity on the program. Yeah. But but the truth is the cult the inertia on the program the culture was very much a Paxman culture. And it actually did turn out to be quite difficult. Um, and I think maybe I was almost falling between both stools there. Quite difficult to be in a program where the expectation of an interview is that there is one brilliant gotcha moment where a politician is left haplessly open mouthed with humiliation. It's hard to move from that to a program where the presenter is trying to help the politician frame their answer in order to understand their argument better. And I don't know if that quite worked. At PM, where I am now, back on Radio 4, which is kind of more my own program and it's much easier for me because it's a smaller operation easier for me to shape it i think i've gone much further in the kind of warmth and curiosity dimension than i ever managed to do on newsnight and i actually think in its more extreme form it's working better on pm than my half-hearted attempts at it on newsnight would you say then evan are you in some ways maybe more comfortable on radio oh yeah yeah definitely yeah yeah definitely and you can you you don't have, you're not thinking about as much and yeah you can sort of be scratching your head and not worrying about it as you as you do on tv during your time in LA, Evan, tell me a little bit about that, just kind of pre-Evan Davis as the journalist. You know, were you a wild child in LA? Did that kind of form who you are today? So LA was two periods of about three and a half months. These were the summers when I was at Harvard. I went to Harvard. I was studying at the Kennedy School of Government, mostly doing economics in the economics department at Harvard. And everybody said, you're very narcissistic and superficial. You really should go to L.A. for, for your, an internship over the summer. And I, I did think that L.A. would be more quintessentially U.S. somehow than, than Massachusetts. So I stri- strived hard to get an internship in L.A. And I got one as doing economic analysis at Southern California Edison, the uh, electric, electric utility. And it was the most fantastically interesting job. We're talking late 80s here. Um, it was performing a cost-benefit analysis on a smart meter. 
Southern California had a problem was in some areas that were very run down. They didn't like to send the meter readers into the homes to read the meters. And then in the other extreme, because LA is full of extremes, the other extreme was that they couldn't get the meter readers into the drive to go and read the meter because it was so gated and um, the people were never there. So um, remote meter reading was a really seen as a really powerful and, and, and great tool. And it was a fantastic opportunity. So, um, sorry, the dog is, is I can, screeching I can hear background. Mr. Whippy. It sounds like he Theo, wants to be Can you just look too. after the dog? The dog is, is, is getting a bit lonely. Um, so, so, so it was a fantastic professional experience. I'd never been there. I'd never had a car. I had to buy a car. <laughs> Sorry, the dog is... The dog is. Clearly he wants to be interviewed, that's totally The acceptable. dog is... He's such an, to, such an... to edit this out. Uh, oh, I that. definitely won't. He's such an attention seeker, Mr. Whippy. Anyway, so the... Um, so it was a fantastic personal experience. And then when I got there, I mean, I was becoming more relaxed about being gay at that point in my life, but I was still quite self-conscious about it, if I'm honest. And everyone in LA was just so kind of unfazed about anything... Uh, it was life-changing for me because just seeing everybody so comfortable with it and then I, within three days you've got a boyfriend there and then within another three days you've met the parents and, and everyone's just like completely comfortable with it. It was, it was kind of, it just sort of showed me what tolerance means in that respect. It's not a political tolerance, it's just an everyday tolerance that was, that was somehow uh, empowering. So So I never kind of my life never kind of went back to the self-consciousness about it that I'd had when I arrived. Mm. So LA really did change my life in a very big way. And professionally, it was a great experience. And I still very much in touch with the guy who um, employed me in Southern California, Edison. It was a really, really interesting uh, place to be. Is there a moment in your career that you can step back and say, gosh, I'm, I'm quite proud of that. I know you're a very humble person, so this might be difficult. But is there a kind of defining moment where you actually felt quite happy with what you've, you achieved? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll give you one. I mean, I've made, I have made a few TV documentaries. And when I say I have made them, that's the way presenters speak. But you should appreciate that, that there is a team of people who do all the work. I, but I, I have been integrally involved in a number of TV documentaries. And I made a two-part series about six, seven years ago called Mind the Gap. And it was about London and its relationship to the rest of the country. And it actually brought in a populist, popular form this piece of economics called agglomeration economics, which is really about this whole area of why cities seem to have a self-reinforcing economic power. Um, and what, what it's all about, really, and L.A. is a brilliant example, is that if the casting people are in L.A. for the films and the studios are in L.A. and the, you know, the agents are in L.A., then the actors will go to L.A. And in no time, you have a kind of an ecosystem that becomes self-reinforcing. And anyone who wants to be in acting sort of has to have a connection or a branch office, at least, to LA because basically otherwise you and it's actually to do with face-to-face -face contact and the kind of the connection the serendipitous knowledge exchange you get when you just have a coffee with someone or you bump into them or you um so this clustering really really works and agglomeration economics is about that and I mean I think that was actually quite a good I think both those programs are really good and I was very proud of them but I know um 
having had conversations with the then Chancellor of the Exchequer, the finance minister, um, subsequently, that, you know, that had an effect on slightly galvanizing the debate over that. I, I, I'm not going to overstate it, but soon after that, we had this catchphrase, the Northern Powerhouse, which is trying to rebuild the north of England. And that became very much focused on trying to take some of the agglomeration economics of London and bring it to the north and create a more critical mass in the cities of the north, which are in their total size, almost the size of London, but which are a little bit strung out and have no infrastructure connecting them to speak of, and which would be much more powerful as a whole than the sum of the parts. And I, I think that documentary, that, that two-part had had an effect on that. And I was I was very proud of that. I think that was I think that was good. I, but I don't want to overstate it. Well, no, I I, I remember it because that was, it was maybe 2013, if I... 2014, I, I, I think. 2014, yeah. was it? And I remember, I'm just thinking, I mean, within media itself, you know, the BBC, of course, opened up a big office in Manchester, Channel 4, obviously mm. trying to do the yeah. same. And so it's kind of funny in, you know, the moment that we're in now, um, whereas previously, you know, life goal is to live in Manhattan in a cool little apartment in the East Village. But here I am, you know, with living in a box with no garden. And and funnily, you know, all of a sudden, all I crave is the countryside and living remotely with a garden. And I wonder, you know, will, will, you know, COVID-19 maybe flip all of that on its head now and maybe people will start leaving cities? Well, that is such an interesting question. And I mean, policy has been directed to some extent at getting people into cities because environmentally, for, for, for you know, climate change purposes, cities are much more efficient. People are using public transport rather than cars. They're living in smaller properties that require less energy to heat. Um, and, uh, you know, so we the whole thrust of policy has been to, you know, nudge people into slightly more dense accommodation and the like. And the economics has taken all the economies there. And COVID is a really significant, I think, sort of stopping that in its tracks, at least to pause it while we all think, hang on a minute. So the economics are, we don't need to go into because <laughs> people learned that probably we only need to be there for sort of 60% of the time anyway. Um, and density means, you know, pandemics spread more quickly. Um, and if we are in a globalised world where these things are going to spread more often and we're going to need lockdowns. We really don't want to be stuck in flats and we don't want families to be stuck in small flats. So I think I think there are no answers, Shana, but there are a lot of questions that are raised by it and the way we're living. Is there a moment in your career that you could pinpoint as being slightly out of the ordinary? I mean, I, I, as I say, being an economics person, I, my, most of my journalistic tales are not really as funny as those... Uh, journalists who go out and report on go what's going on in other countries. Probably the, the sort of craziest moment in my journalistic career was going to India to report on the, um, this is around 2000, reporting on the, um, the boom in, 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 in high-tech startups in Bangalore, in and around Bangalore, and the fantastic training India was doing of a kind of cohort of young software engineers and the like who were going to take on the world and i think it was a great thing to do anyway so we're in bangalore doing this rather interesting economic piece we went to chennai um and we reported on a ford car plant there and actually that was very it was just the tale of a car plant in chennai and, and and what what it had done for the community and what it hadn't done for the community and it was you know a good good little piece and um why were they the, the story that everyone was talking around about in Bangalore was this story of an actor 
Raj Kumar, a pretty well-known actor in India, who had been kidnapped by a bandit called Virapan. I don't know, for some reason, we, we were just intrigued in the story. It was nothing to do with what we were there for. But this is, this is, this is perhaps a bit where my journal instinct actually caught on. I said, why don't we do a piece on Raj Kumar and Virapan? Because it seemed to say a lot about India. There were, there were vigils outside Raj Kumar's house in Bangalore. There were, the, the actual place where it happened was from his, his, kind of, his second home, uh, six-hour drive south. So the producer... A guy called Daniel Pearl. Um, I know him well. He used to be Daniel, my boss, Evan. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Daniel was actually getting a bit sick at this point, but it, we, but we was desperate to persevere. Um, so we, we we drove down there, and we just had this crazy day with the local sheriff showing us into the sort of the jungle, really, around India and saying, here's some elephant bones and, and, and Virapan and being allowed into Raj Kumar's house and his family were there and that we were from the BBC. So they like, oh, yes, come on in. And this is where he was. It was just very strange. And then we went back to Bangalore where there was a vigil outside his, his main residence. And I met a young guy and I said, why, why did you feel you wanted to be here? And he said, well, I love Raj Kumar. So I... It, it's a, it said I rolled two kilometers to get here. <laughs> now this he rolled. You don't need me to tell you. You don't need me to tell you. <laughs> this is a very alien concept to a Western audience. And I was like, I, I, I'm sorry. What did you say? And I said I rolled two kilometers to get here. And and I just I was kind of like this. This is telling us so much more about India than all the boring stuff <laughs> that I came here to report about the sort of cultural. You know, the cultural attachments and the rituals and the sort of the complete contrast to the way we would tend to do. We don't go and roll two kilometers to show our respect to a kidnapped actor. I should say, by the way, the story has a happy ending. He did come out. Um, he was released, uh, Raj Kumar. I'm glad. We just did a really interesting piece. And I guess that just tells you, I don't know what the journalistic lesson is, but I think sometimes the most interesting stories are not the ones you're out looking for, really, aren't they? You know this. They're, they're, they're the one you discover on the way. And it, it did make me think that there is, there is life beyond economics. And it did, it, it, did, it did provoke the thinking that actually what is good in journalism are good stories and good characters. And so, so the, the, the true lesson is not get out of economics, is that Look for the good stories in economics and the good characters in economics. And you see, what we haven't talked about, Shona, in, in this whole discussion is the fact that if you go out onto the streets of the UK, I'm not really much of a known figure, except for one thing, which is I know not what you're gonna my say. 25 years of journalism and explaining stuff and doing news like... <clears throat> It's Dragon's Den, which is the US, the UK equivalent of, of Shark Tank. Um, and I'm just the presenter. I'm, I have a minute on screen at the beginning and end of the programme and I do the voiceover. Does that bother you? No, no, it doesn't. But what it is, is, again, it's like good stories. Every one of those encounters is a story. Everybody involved in that programme is a character. And it is very interesting to me that really the essence of most good entertainment and most really telling news is story and character. And, and, and that is really where most people's consumption of everything, you know, in entertainment and, and broadcast is. If you liked what you heard on this episode of Media Tribe, tune in next week as I'll be dropping new shows every week with all sorts of legendary folk from the industry. And if you could leave me a review and rating, that would be really appreciated. 
Also, get in touch on social media at Shauna on Twitter or at Shauna Kinnear on Instagram and feel free to suggest new guests. Right, that's it. Until next week, see you then. This episode is edited by Ryan Ferguson. 